It's Monday, July 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Today is all about testing. Short of a vaccine, testing is the first line of defense in helping limit the spread of COVID-19. But what will it look like when everyone returns to work? Some employers are finding out that testing employees is more trouble than it's worth. Issues with cost, access, and employee privacy are some of the reasons why testing isn't part of back-to-work plans. Instead, employers are in favor of lower-cost options like masks, hand sanitizer, temperature checks, and symptom screening. Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for workplace safety during the pandemic. Next, antibody tests were also hailed as one of the main ways to get people back to work. Test positive for antibodies, and it means you've had the coronavirus and aren't in danger of catching it or infecting someone else. But these tests have had problems with accuracy. The reporter we speak to next had to take five antibody tests before she could trust the results. And the big question, does testing positive for antibodies give you a free pass? We still don't know how much immunity is bestowed on a person or for how long it lasts. Stephanie Baker, senior writer at Bloomberg News, joins us for what to know about these tests. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Employers now coming into all of this and thinking about whether they'll even be able to access testing in a consistent way for their employees and provide that on-site to their workers. Joining us now is Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about workplace safety in the age of COVID-19. Obviously, a lot of places have started to return to work, but there's still a lot of other companies that are formulating those plans and rolling it out a little bit more slowly. I know our company, iHeartRadio, is taking a much slower approach to bringing everybody back. But one of the interesting things that has popped up with this is testing. Again, testing has become this thing that has ramped up again as cases are starting to surge. But employers are finding that testing might be a little more trouble than it's worth. And it all has to do with cost. A lot of the diagnostic tests start around $100 each. The access and logistics to all of this stuff is pretty daunting and cost prohibitive sometimes. So Emma, tell us a little bit about this. You raise an important point here, which is when you talk about employers, there's a vast range of scenarios you can think about, right? There are some companies have been, workplaces have been operating throughout this pandemic, right? You think of healthcare providers or manufacturing, um, you know, even some essential construction, right? And then there are other kinds of employers that are only starting to grapple with, you know, should we go back to work? What would that look like? You know, now, and it depends highly on the locality and where you are in the country, how productive your employees have been during quarantine. So there's so many factors to consider here. But what's really interesting about the role of testing in all this is that testing has been such a first-line solution when it comes to the spread of COVID. It's been absolutely essential in terms of stemming the virus's spread. We don't have a vaccine, but we do have testing. And in fact, shortages of testing have been a big impediment in terms of the U.S.'s ability to stem the spread of this virus. So that's an important piece of context when you consider employers now coming into all of this and thinking about whether they'll even be able to access testing in a consistent way for their employees and provide that on-site to their workers. And then these issues of cost. So as you point out, it's about $100 a test for an active infection in the United States. And then if you factor on top of that, the fact that these are one-time tests, right? So if I get tested right now and I test negative, 
that tells my employer that as of this exact time on this exact date, I'm negative, but it doesn't tell my employer what happens afterwards. Did I, you know, wander out onto the street and become infected? Did I, you know, go to a big event and come into contact with someone who was ill? So this is a critical limitation when you think about the relevance of these tests. And then there are also these other issues of logistics. Testing times for turnaround times are creeping up. So ideally, you would want test results back within 15 or 20 or 30 minutes. Even days at this point is kind of not happening. So people are waiting as long as seven days, 10 days sometimes to get their test results back. So that's another challenge, right? If you only get my test result back a week from now, how much information does that really give you? How helpful is that? Maybe it's time for me to take another test by that point, right? And then there are these other questions. This is a totally new role employers would be taking in their employees' health care, right? I mean, employers may provide health insurance to their employees, but they're not usually involved in administering tests on site. So do employees even want that? We're hearing yes at Disney resorts, for instance. Performers are saying we want to have tests to go back to work. We're eager to go back to work, but we can't wear masks. We can't wear gloves like other professions. We can't work from home. Can you make this happen? In Las Vegas, you're having casino employees represented by a union actually suing some casinos, calling for mandatory testing. So this is something that's only beginning to emerge. It's sort of a burgeoning issue, but I would expect to see a lot more clashes about this as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, there was even a recent survey done of 40 large employers and testing was way at the bottom of the list. You know, they want to alter the workplace to allow for social distancing, the face mask, on-site questionnaires. Are you sick? Are you experiencing symptoms, temperature checks? And way at the bottom is conducting on-site testing. So obviously something that they're aware of, but one of their biggest concerns about it, as we keep saying, is just the cost. And they're even trying to get to see if insurance can pay for some of these costs. So it's definitely a big concern there. When you think about going back to the office and you think about what public health recommendations are in terms of preventing COVID from spreading, it's social distancing, right? And that's pretty manageable in an office. You take away some chairs, you spread out desks more. It's not the easiest possible thing, but it's pretty easy. And then requiring face masks, also fairly low cost intervention. Maybe you have to provide your employees face masks for something like that. But Again, not the biggest pull, not the biggest lift in the world. Administering screenings, so basically sending an employee maybe a four-questionnaire, asking do you have symptoms, things like that. Were you in a high-risk situation? Maybe even also temperature checks, maybe buying some fancy machine that will screen people as they come in and ensure that they're not running a temperature. Maybe providing your employees with thermometers so they can test their temperature before they come in. Going through your office and ensuring that someone who's tested positive telling people who they've been in contact with about it, ensuring they quarantine. These are all relatively doable to implement in the workplace and installing plexiglass, although it's perhaps somewhat more costly than social distancing, still adding these physical barriers doable. And then testing is where you get into some of the bigger costs. And it's worth noting that employers have gone through a period, many of them during these shutdowns, suffered tremendous financial costs. And so when you think about adding to that by implementing a a costly measure that doesn't return as much as you would like, I think that's where many of them are drawing the line. And it remains to be seen how this will play out. I think as testing technology hopefully improves and more fast 
turnaround tests become available, things that you can actually do on site at a workplace lobby or attend outside, providing 15 minute results to to patients who are also your employees. I think that will really change the calculus. Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. What's unusual with the Abbott test is is that I've I know a couple of people who have also taken it who had more classic symptoms and they tested negative on it. So, you know, there's so many things about this disease that we still don't understand. Joining us now is Stephanie Baker, senior writer at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk to you about your experience with COVID-19. It's been an interesting ride, it seems. Your latest article, I had to take five antibody tests to get results I could believe. So start us off. Tell us about your experience with this. You seem to have gotten sick in February, but you couldn't take a test because testing wasn't so readily available. After that, you took four antibody tests, two came back positive, two came back negative. So you didn't know what to believe. And it wasn't until this fifth test that you took that came back positive, showing that you had antibodies for COVID-19 that you could really kind of get into the next phase of it, really, because there was all sorts of other stuff that came with that. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the first story I did was taking these rapid finger prick blood tests for antibodies uh, against COVID-19. And if you remember earlier in the year, a lot of these rapid test kits, these little cassettes had sort of flooded the market both in the U.S. and here in the U.K., but they hadn't been validated by the FDA. It was kind of a free-for-all. A lot of people were questioning the reliability of them. So I thought, well, if I take enough tests and I cross-check it with people who have confirmed cases, had confirmed nasal swab cases of COVID, then I should be able to figure it out. But I could not figure it out that, that first way. So two positive test results two negatives, um, and they didn't correlate with, with the nurses and doctors that I found to, to also take those tests. Now, I waited for a more reliable test to come out, and you know many, many of the drug companies were saying, well, actually, slightly more reliable test is with an intravenous blood draw. And two of the tests uh, that made headlines were by Abbott, a U.S. pharma healthcare company, and a Roche, which is a Swiss company. Both of those tests were given emergency use authorization by the FDA in the U.S., as well as they were validated here in the U.K. by the government. So I took the Abbott test, the only one I could get privately, and it did indeed come back positive, which I was oddly very relieved to find. You know, it's not normal to be relieved and happy when you get diagnosed with a disease, but in this case, I was quite relieved. So I at least had three positives and two negatives. So in the positive column, I was feeling a little bit more confident. Testing positive for it, uh, you know, you finally know that you had COVID-19. When you got sick with it in February, how bad was it for you? You know, it wasn't that bad. I think I caught it on a ski trip to the French Alps with my family. I took the train from from London down to the Alps and took the train back, stayed in Paris for a night, and I caught it somewhere along the way there. And soon after I came back, I just felt extreme exhaustion, nausea, stomach upset, headache, fever. But I didn't have a cough. 
So when I called the doctor, the National Health Service doctor here, I said, shouldn't I isolate? And, you know, I was in this area, like I'd gone across the border for a day to ski in Italy, you know, and that was at that time the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. Um, and they said, no, you, you, because you don't have a cough, it's a respiratory illness. You just that you didn't, you don't have COVID. You're fine. You don't need to isolate. No problems. So it, it wasn't that bad. I was exhausted and remained exhausted for several weeks. And I just didn't understand what exactly had hit me. So I, I, I didn't have the classic symptoms like yeah. some people have. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, what's unusual with the Abbott test is, is that I've, I know a couple of people who have also taken it who had more classic symptoms and they tested negative on it. So, you know, there's so many things about this disease that we still don't understand, including who generates antibodies against it? How do you fight it off? You know, maybe there are other arms of the immune system that are fighting it off, like your T cell responses. So there's just, I think there's just so much more research that needs to be done about how people respond to it. So what does it mean now to be positive for having the antibodies to COVID-19? I would imagine a lot of people feel wow, this is a free pass now. I can uh, move freely throughout the world, throughout my community without any fear of getting it because I already had it. Although we still don't know how much of an immunity antibodies bestow on a person, how long they last. But how did you feel after getting that test? Yeah, I felt greatly relieved. It gave me a peace of mind. And I did feel like, oh, I don't have to wear a mask. In the UK, unlike the US, I think mask wearing is not as prevalent. It's only required when you're on public transportation. It's not required when you go into shops. And many people, I would say the majority of people in shops are not wearing masks, which I think is wrong. I actually think we should be wearing masks. So after that initial rush of, I'm free, I stepped back and I realized, I don't know what this really means. I don't know how long these antibodies will last for. And I really should probably play it on the safe side to be a kind of good pandemic citizen and, you know, wear my mask when I go into shops and, you know, follow social distancing rules. What do you think it means for populations to have antibodies? Uh, I noted in your article, you said the center, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, said that uh, for every confirmed case of COVID-19, there could be 10 more people that have antibodies. So right now in the United States, we have about 3 million people that have COVID-19. So that means there's probably about 30 million people that have antibodies for it. But the U.S. population is 328 million. So uh, that's a, a huge number of people that still haven't had any type of experience with this virus yet. And I know for a long time, you know, going back to work, there was a lot of companies, a lot of people saying antibody tests are the way to go. We're going to know who has it or who's had it, and then they can come back to work freely. So how does how do you feel about all that? We don't know the real extent of who has antibodies. And, and certainly, if going by the CDC number, 30 million is nowhere close to what you would want for so-called herd immunity, where a certain percentage of the population has it, that it will cause the sort of virus to die out. Antibodies do mean something. We don't know fully what they mean. For instance, they are being used for therapy on COVID patients. People are donating antibody-positive blood plasma to treat COVID patients. So obviously they have to work to some degree, but one person made a very, I thought, telling argument to me, which is, yes, we don't know how long they last, but continuous testing will reassure you. So one test may not be the silver bullet, but 
let's say if you test every few weeks just to see if your antibodies are there, that might give you some reassurance. I mean, the bottom line is this virus hasn't been around long enough to know how long they last. Um, You know, if you look at previous uh, coronaviruses, the first SARS outbreak in Asia in 2002, 2003, they did studies which showed that people who contracted the first SARS, they had antibodies that lasted for two years and then they started to drop in year three. So is this going to be similar? It's unclear. We just don't know. I want to circle back a little bit and talk a little bit more about the test, the fingerprint, I'm sorry, the finger prick test, and then obviously the one that you got from from Abbott. Uh, There's a great line in your article, while the meaning of testing positive remains clear, the desire to find out was overwhelming. And, and you know, in that context, you were talking about companies that were trying to roll out testing for their employees and everything. But I mean, definitely everybody just wants to know if they might have had it, if they were one of those asymptomatic people. Tell me about that. And then also, you know, the finger prick test, because they seem not to be as reliable. Yes. Well, you know, the thing about this story, it has it has really hit a nerve. I've never had so many readers email me about a story ever before. And I've been doing this for over two decades. Um, you know, people are sending me their test results. Everyone is obsessed. And I, 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 people I t- are angry, sending me emails, like really angry, like that test doesn't work. It, you know, yeah. I definitely had COVID and it tested me as negative. And to, be, and to be clear real quick, you're not a doctor or a scientist. You noted this in your article, but people wanted a second opinion from you <laughs> with their own tests yeah. and everything. Well, and it, in fairness, it's really confusing unless you've done a lot of research to figure out what test is it. And, you know, uh, you know, friends of mine had said, I'm going to get an antibody test. And I was like, well, which one? You better figure out which one first because they're not all made equally. And I think that brings it back to this whole question of the finger prick test. I mean, one of the finger prick, two of the finger prick tests I took were clearly more accurate than the others. I mean, I think the problem with the finger prick test is they are just by design not as sensitive as the blood draw. You can't get that level of sensitivity. So you might miss people with perhaps low levels of antibodies. Some of the tests out there, whether they're finger prick or lab tests, can confuse your antibodies with antibodies to the common cold coronaviruses that are often circulating. So they're not specific, in other words, to the SARS-CoV-2. So it's really hard, even as a journalist, and I'm an investigative journalist, like looking into the, you know, how exactly are these tests made? It's not disclosed, you know, which antibodies do they target? Are they looking for the antibodies against the spike protein? Or are they looking for antibodies against the so-called nucleocapsid, which is another viral sort of shell that you ge- your body generates in response to the virus? Um, so I had to ask and probe and figure out. And, and the ones that do test for the so-called nucleocapsid, this is the Abbott and the Roche test, do seem to be, you know, getting better results. Um, I'd like to caveat that with, you know, they're not perfect. Uh, you know, they're not going to catch everything, but they're, they're better than many other market. Stephanie Baker, senior writer at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.